Hi, ED Superfans, Luke here. You're probably listening to this episode because you want to be at the cutting edge of sustainable business. And that's exactly why this episode is being brought to you in association with E.ON. As the way we use energy changes, E.ON can help your business turn energy challenges into sustainable business opportunities. To find out more about how your business could benefit, visit eonenergy.com forward slash solutions. Hello and welcome to the ED podcast. Uh, Fresher than a clean air summit, more rewarding than a plastics deposit return scheme and full of more environmental activism than a school climate strike. Coming up on today's show, we go to Flatpak Heaven as IKEA take us on a tour of their most sustainable store in the UK. The unique aspect here, and it's a global first, is this learning lab. It's a 75 square meter space uh, situated downstairs where we have our bargain corner. So the place where people come to buy X-Display products, etc. Um, and what we will be testing and trialing in partnership with both partners and local community uh, and our internal staff is how can we run activities, workshops, talks to um, develop skills and mindsets around um, upcycling for example, mm-hmm. prolonging product life. It's mission possible at 35,000 feet as we speak with Heathrow Airport's sustainability director after their ED award win. The, the scientific evidence is saying we need to reach net zero emissions by the middle of the century across the economy. That's a huge challenge and as aviation we've got to work out what's our response to that, what combination of new technology, uh, of uh, offsetting, of carbon pricing, uh, is going to drive us to that uh, to that net zero future. And we turn the mirror on ourselves for an insight into how ED is driving sustainability through the leader of our very own environmental task force. So the task force was set up about three or four months ago. We've had a, a good thinkathon session, <laughs> not a brainstorming session. It was a thinkathon to identify various issues across the organisation in terms of carbon, um, carbon uh, emissions, energy use, business travel. Plus, are thinkathons and hackathons the way forward for sustainable business? Is there anyone more inspiring than Paul Pullman? Do the next generation of business leaders have what it takes to save the world? And what is George's sustainability success story of all time? All that and more on episode 57 of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Hello everyone, Uh, Yeah, we're back in this uh, makeshift studio, raring to go uh, for this episode which is uh, brought to you in association with E.ON, Uh, but first some some bitterly sad news, Um, hopefully the music's faded out by now, (laughs) this is is time to get serious for a moment, Um, actually I don't know if I can deliver this news myself, George, why don't you break it to the listeners what what this news is? I'm afraid to say that the end is nigh. Um, we, we've, 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 we've shared some great times over the years, but um, uh, I, I regret to say that this will be my last podcast episode. Do you want to explain why? Because that's quite 
I was just waiting for everyone to like burst into applause. Hooray, it's over finally. The end of the night does make it sound like this is a superhero <laughs> movie and some sort of alien invasion is going to come for us all. So. Yeah, all that George's, please. all that he's suffering from some quite severe sort of illness of some kind, which yeah, I think we should probably George will very much still be around, um, <laughs> just not in the not in the needy capacity, right? Correct. Um, yeah, this is my last episode. In fact, my last week at ED. Um, after three fantastic years, uh, but no need to laugh, Luke. I'm laughing because <laughs> it, it starts to sound like when a football manager is sort of handing in their notice or resignation. But yeah, it has been three fantastic years. Go, go on. Sorry. Actually, yeah, it's funny you should say that because I do feel like the Pep Guardiola <laughs> sustainability. Yeah, good um, one for our football fan listeners out there. Yeah, but uh, that's that's right. Uh, after three years, uh, I will be leaving and going on to pastures new. Mm-hmm. Um, working uh, in government for, for DEFRA, so still still on the environmental side of things. Mm. Um, but yeah, this is, this is it. Yeah, sad news, um, but every cloud does have a silver lining, I suppose, because it means we get to go out for drinks after work this, uh, this afternoon, this evening, um, because, yeah, you say this is your last week. I'm not even sure. Is it your last day? I've just heard downstairs. I'm, I'm not sure, but anyway, we're, we're trying to get the last out of you with a few drinks at the it's, uh, still It's still open to debate, but um, no, I don't want this to be about me. <laughs> no. It's been about five minutes, but there we go. Um, Sarah, uh, hello. Uh, apart from being in a general state of shock there by George's uh, shock announcement, uh, how are you today? And, and yeah, what's filling up your reporter's notepad? Literally everything is filling up my reporter's <laughs> notepad. It's been probably the most hectic time since last year's ED Live um, for me. And that was hectic. Yes, and that was hectic. So between, as I'm sure we're going to talk about, the Sustainability Leaders Forum and the awards been sent out to various other events covering everything from carbon trading after Brexit to why we need free bus travel to decarbonise transport. Well, yeah, not much then. Uh, it has been a busy period. Matt, Podcast Secretary, hello. Hello. How are you? Um, I'm feeling I'm going through those varying stages of grief, but uh, I, I think I've, I think I'm at acceptance right now, so not too bad. I think it's a bit of grief, but at the moment, like whenever when anyone asks me sort of how I'm doing, I've kind of got two standard responses. The one, if if anyone in a sort of work capacity, particularly anyone more senior than us in the office, asks me, I sort of say, yeah, fine, just really busy. But anyone else, I just sound knackered, just really shattered, <laughs> just really tired from the last few weeks. It's been really full on. Um, straight back after Christmas, we had the Sustainability Leaders Club event. I think that was literally my first day back. Yeah, we've kind of gone club forum, forum awards. energy leaders club, yeah, awards. Yeah. And then we've got yeah. two events on the horizon. Mm-hmm. Um, it's... It's been it's full never on. ending, isn't it? It sounds really dull when we say that. It has been good fun. It's yeah, just yeah. Been, been full on. What's, what's been your uh, highlight of the lot out of all of those kind of events? Any specific moments stand out for you, Matt? The awards in the forum were by far, I think, the best we've delivered so far. But um, I'm really excited about the new kind of initiative that we just launched. It's kind of brand spanking new, nice and shiny on the site, which is the 30 Under 30 yes. initiative. Um, which is our since our inaugural members, we've essentially gathered thirty sustainability energy CSR professionals under the age of thirty that have either kind of already shown excellence or kind of have that potential to become the next era of sustainability leaders. Um, we're going to essentially facilitate some of their growth through kind of bespoke events, mm-hmm. conferences, and, and whatnot. And we've got some really interesting names from some kind of. You know, notable companies, Innocent Drinks, BBC, Formula E, I thought was a really interesting one. Yes, yeah. Um, so it's it's a really exciting new venture. I'm interested to see 
what editorial content we can get off the back of that. Yeah, it's been fantastic. It's been it is it's completely new. It's uh, very ageist, you could say, but I think in a good way, in the sense that it is celebrating those people that are going to be leading business in in years to come. Many of them already in pretty authoritative positions. Yeah. Actually, it was quite surprising, not because I was looking at their headshots and thinking this, but to see some of the people coming through and realising actually they are under the age of 30 and they've done so much in mm. their career, it's quite shocking. Mm. won't name any names there because that will just sound like <laughs> But um, brings it all home when they're younger than you as yeah, well. Yeah, it's, it's true, yeah, because we, we would technically all qualify. I thought I'd just get that one in there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how old do you think I am? Um, but yeah, so it's quite nice, isn't it? It sort of feels, we feel quite, I feel quite connected to this project from the offset in that, maybe in that sense in a strange way just everyone in the involved is young and therefore kind of looking to learn whilst looking to sort of lead in a bit of a different way yeah, um, Sarah did bring up a, a, a list of all of the participants but for the sake of continuity I just I don't want to ruffle around with all the papers here but there are mm-hmm. some great names in it um, and we'll include the link in the podcast description that's one for you Matt um, so that's Matt's highlight Sarah how about you what's been your highlight over the past few weeks well, it was my first forum and awards, and I think that probably the best thing would be seeing Paul Pullman in person for the first yeah. time at the awards. Yeah. Um, so for listeners that weren't there, we, he was awarded the Lifetime Achievement um, Accolade yes. on the night. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was very inspiring to watch him speak about everything, ranging from the company's own um, efforts to date and then looking to the future mm-hmm. as well. That was going to be mine. So uh, (laughs) again, for the sake of continuity, let's 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 do things a bit different then, because I was going to mention that one, um, and I think we can potentially play that now, uh, which is Paul Pullman's acceptance speech, because um, he's obviously the former CEO of Unilever, now still involved in sustainability in various ways. He's chair of the. B-team, vice-chair of UN Global Compact. I had to read all of this out on stage and it was a really long list. Um, but this was our, it was our biggest awards yet, um, Sustainability Leaders Awards, 600-plus uh, guests, yeah, I think almost 700 guests. Uh, we had a new judging panel, new judging process, seven or eight new categories, uh, and the introduction of our Guest of Honour and our Lifetime Achievement Award, um, which was judged by all of our judging panel, I think of which there was 19 or 20 of them. Uh, and it was well, a completely unanimous decision, but it was the vast, vast majority. It was a, a landslide towards Paul Pullman for this one. Um, yeah, and I would completely f- agree with your point, Sarah. I'd honestly say that I've never really experienced anything like it, from a certainly from an event perspective. You think of an awards crowd, and it can get quite rowdy quite quickly. <laughs> Um, particularly in our space um, but you know with uh, you know uh, a room full of six or seven hundred people it can be quite easy to lose that room quite quickly with a particular anecdote or a speech that can go on for quite some time and Paul for 10 or 15 minutes just held this room silently yeah this speech. everyone was mesmerised mm. by what he was saying it was like it was one of those things it's a bit cliche but you could have heard a pin drop because yeah. everyone was so invested into what crazy. he had to say so let's rather than us just uh, talking about it let's let's hear a little excerpt from that so Matt I'll get you to pick out a kind of a five minute excerpt from this um, We w- it is the full thing is on our YouTube channel and we will again include a link within the podcast description but here is Paul Pullman giving his uh, Lifetime Achievement Award acceptance speech time is running out and we need to act. And I need you all, your combined efforts to do that. Frankly, the direction is clear. More or less everybody knows what we need to do. The few skeptics I would not listen to and spend too much time on. But what we miss is the speed and scale. Even more so now, this is crucial, 
because frankly, historically, we've depended on governments to do the job and they're terribly falling short of that responsibility now. So we need to step up. I'm very glad to hear that in the day that you've been together, you've already discussed the roadmap, which is the global goals, the sustainable development goals. They're a wonderful roadmap of 17 goals that actually uh, span from ending poverty to gender equality, or from climate action to life below water, or from zero hunger to fairer institutions, rule of law, uh, anti-corruption, and all the other things. And this plan, this business plan that we have, increasingly makes more sense. When we created the Commission of Business and Sustainable Development, which was chaired by Mark Malik Brown, we found an opportunity just looking at four areas of about $12 trillion. And more importantly, at least I thought so, was an opportunity to create jobs for about 380 million people. This probably is the most exciting agenda that we have in the world right now. But the reality is also we are not on course. On any of these major indicators, we're off. Climate change and inequality, once more, is, uh, the most burn are the most burning issues. I don't want to live in a world where still 3 billion people don't have access to clean drinking water or sanitation. I don't want to live in a world where nearly 1 billion people are going to bed hungry. And frankly, the numbers are going up. I don't want to live in a world where 3.8 billion people still live of less than $5.50 a day. And I don't want to live in a world where we are about to commit the biggest intergenerational crime as we're doing with the devastating effects of climate change. So a transformation to a more sustainable, more equitable future, one as we call it in the Sustainable Development Goals of not leaving anybody behind is absolutely, absolutely crucial. I believe that business, which is now the biggest force in any economy, should be a force for good. It's just absolutely no um, other option. After all, why would otherwise society let these businesses be around? The fact that the average tenure of a CEO of a major company has dropped to four and a half years, the average length of a life of a publicly traded company has dropped to about 17 years, is clearly because we're not responding to the needs of society. It is time to move from CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, to RSC, Responsible Social Corporations. Frankly, the citizens of this world are demanding this. Less bad, which is still the CSR camp, is simply not good enough anymore. We tried to put a sustainable living plan out there, probably a little bit ahead of its time, certainly had its fair share of skeptics and cynics, but at the end of the day, it was decoupling growth from environmental impact and improving the overall social impact. We don't have a choice. I think we now need to go further. Decoupling alone is not enough anymore. You have to start thinking regenerative and restoring some of these um, planetary boundaries that we're playing with. Fully aligned with the SDGs, by the way. I would also argue it's probably the best business agenda that you can get. And the longer we wait, increasingly, it's also more profitable. Our returns over these 10 years have been 300%, more or less. Our return on invested capital is 19%. Uh, I would argue that the development agenda is one of the most profitable agendas. I've also learned that purpose-driven brands that focus on this development agenda are actually doing better. I've also learned that a multi-stakeholder long-term um, focus uh, or mo long-term model is the best model. It's actually the only model that I think works. There we go. Uh, words of wisdom indeed. A huge thank you to Paul and his team for agreeing to, to come along. He certainly 
helped make that a, a very special night. Um, as I say, a full link to the uh, speech, a link to the full speech uh, will be included in the in the episode description on ed.net. Um, I'm aware that I missed out, well, I missed out myself from our highlights, apart from, I guess, I reiterated Sarah's Paul one. Um, if I was to just pick one out very briefly, this was a highlight from the past few weeks. It has been, it would, would be the thinkathons and the hackathon approach that we've taken to recent events. Just thought I'd mention that because there's more of that to come. It's quite a nice uh, new approach that we're taking with our events. And we launched a, a plastics thinkathon at the Sustainability Leaders Forum and a Mission Possible sort of business thinkathon also at the forum in another room there. Uh, and the results are coming out on ED. This is a very shameless plug, I know, but it's a, it was a nice take on the event and I'd, I'd recommend anyone has a quick read particularly of the plastic stinkathon write-up because it was not written by George it was Sarah's um, <laughs> yeah. but yeah it was a, it was a I like this I like the article and I like the kind of the feel that we're giving to that event anyway that's enough for me George I didn't get, allow you to give your highlight once and I suppose it would be a bit wrong of me to ask for your highlight of the last couple of weeks with you now probably winding down and starting to think about the next pastures new but um what's been your sort of putting you on the spot your your highlight of the last three and a bit years on the in a podcast context mm. I was thinking of these earlier I could tee this up for you you've got your nervous Sadiq Khan interview back mm. in the you remember that one mm. you remember that sort of live from ED live episode when you sort of you looking quite sort of bleary eyed yeah, I remember that, that one that, that one where we're sort of looking across at him bloodshot eyes thinking <laughs> did he go to bed last night um perhaps that episode when he just didn't show up and we just didn't know where he was or or what to I do. I think that was all your favourite. <laughs> yeah, that was probably my favourite, yeah. But what, what was yours? Uh, I think you did touch upon it, actually, uh, and it wasn't uh, the one you just mentioned. It was actually the Sadiq Khan one. Not yeah. just because I got to speak to one of my you know, political heroes yeah, as such. Um, it was actually one of the first ones where like, I took it on from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I was in the studio by myself. Um, this is quite early on in my career um, because I think you go back to the first couple of episodes and think how, how daunting it was, for me especially, because I'd never actually done anything like this before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Sadiq one was the first one where I cemented it, I think, as like, yeah, this is, I've, I've really found my voice yeah. on the uh, podcast mm-hmm. stage. Um, yeah, so I spoke to Sadiq, I think the better interview of the two actually was one with James Thornton. And it, was, it was one of the f- first interviews that I had where I felt like I could have a bit of fun, you know, you're not too rigid in the questions that you're asking. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that was facilitated by the fact that James Thornton had had such an extraordinary background and just t- talking to him about that kind of thing really like... Um, really helped in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and James Thornton being just... Oh, sorry, for, uh, for our listeners who aren't aware. I'm sure they are, because didn't he win our sustainability leaders? Mm, oh, he was... I, oh, you put me on the spot there. He was definitely involved, wasn't he, for an, an award? Yeah. Sure. I, I think know. he was shortlisted as a finalist, wasn't he? He definitely for won it. something around that time, yeah. whether anyway. that was our own award or external. We, we digress, but... Anyway, James Thornton, the uh, client Earth chief executive yeah. uh, obviously they've done a lot of good work and taken the government to um the court over mm-hmm. air quality but yeah as i said he had a great background he's like a zen buddhist yeah i remember um, that release like yeah. sci- sci-fi thriller novels just yeah. incredible um and i think it was that kind of approach just talking to him on like a, a human level mm-hmm. but then span off into like we've done like the green room yeah yeah really get delving deep into the backgrounds of these sustainability professionals and yeah i think that was probably 
the highlight for me the good. podcast that was good I think that says a lot the fact that your two highlights are sort of policy related in terms of where you're going next as well <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right, right uh, that brings us to an end of part one of the sustainable business covered podcast uh, join us for part two where we'll be talking sustainability leadership with Heathrow Airport and then Sarah will be taking us on a tour of IKEA's ultra sustainable store in Greenwich Welcome back to part two of this three-part episode of the ED Podcast. Um, the statistics do show that if you've made it this far, then you'll be likely to stay on until the bitter end. So, yeah, well done for sticking with us. Um, now, we ended part one with flavour from our uh, Sustainability Leaders Awards, uh, and that does seem to be a running theme for part two, because we're going to be hearing in quite different ways from uh, two more of our uh, ED Award winners. And first up, I believe we're going to be turning to the winner of what was the one of the biggest awards of the night, the Mission Possible Sustainable Business of the Year Award. Uh, and the winner, somewhat con- controversially, it has to be said, was Heathrow Airport. Um, we know the sustainability team there rather well, although I probably should add there that we, we, we are impartial. We don't judge this award ourselves. <laughs> it's, it's an independent judging panel. Um, but we followed, I guess, as an editorial team, haven't we? We followed the developments there quite closely, especially in the midst of all the um, expansion. Uh, and Heathrow won the award. And uh, essentially, I think we, we spoke with, was it Matt Gorman from the team? It was, then? yes. Yeah. Um, so we managed to grab kind of 10 minutes um, with him, he's very, very busy this week. Lots of kind of public-facing consultations going on. So, um, uh, again, thank you, Matt, for your time. I managed to talk to him very, very briefly on the nights um, after he'd won, and he was genuinely surprised um, mm. um, that Heathrow had kind of won. And so it was just a good chance to kind of catch up on his thoughts on the win, what that kind of recognition means to him and Heathrow, and, and to kind of delve into a bit and perhaps explain um, a bit more why Heathrow were worthy winners in that sense because yeah. as you mentioned there are some controversies around it um, but it, this discussion gives us a good chance just to explain that as a sustainable business over the last 12 months Heathrow have kind of really pushed themselves into a leadership position. Mm. Well why did he think they win the award then? Let's hear, let's hear from himself. Here's uh, Sustainability and Environment Director from Heathrow Airport, uh, Matt Gorman. Thank you for um, dialing in Matt. It's, um, it's good to hear you. I think we met very very briefly at the actual um, awards, um, you were kind of you kind of collected um, the trophy and went off to do a little video interview. How you know it's, you've had a bit of a chance to probably um, reflect on it now. How how was that night? Did you did you expect to win? And what was the feeling around winning? Uh, I genuinely did not expect to win, and uh, so the feeling was really good actually. Um, and uh, I mean, I suppose to give a bit of context on that answer, you know. Uh, aviation is a, a carbon intensive sector. We've got some big sustainability challenges. Heathrow in particular um, has had a, a difficult relationship with some of its local communities, not all of them, but some of them. And we, we do have a bit of a trust deficit locally. And that's something we've been looking to address over a number of years now with Heathrow 2.0, really bringing all of that together. Um, and Heathrow 2.0 is all about uh, setting out some bold goals for the future, saying what we're going to do on the basis that if we then go off and do what we said we would, we will build some of that trust and build confidence that we want to be part of the solution. Um, But I suppose I was, um, the reason I was really pleased to have won the award though was because it shows that um, some of that effort we've been putting in 
uh, is starting to uh, resonate with some of the sustainability opinion formers and decision makers uh, that judge the ED Awards. So I was delighted, really. Okay, great. Now, as Matt mentioned, Matthew, it's Sarah here. Um, Hi. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Um, yeah, I just wanted to ask that um, winning an award, how will that impact the strategy going forward? Does it help, for example, with the achievement of buy-in? Or you mentioned how it was um, likely to affect how the company might be perceived by some of the communities. Yeah, I think um, it's really important to have, to have won the award, actually. I mean, there's, uh, let me say a bit about the internal and the external. I mean, internally, we're reasonably targeted in the awards that we apply for. And I think they can be, they're useful for a few reasons. They give us a really good sense check of, you know, we think we've got a good approach here, but actually when a series of you know high-profile judges look at it, what do they think? So it's great benchmarking for us. Even if you don't win an award, actually, it's good to get the feedback. Um, but when you win, I think it's really powerful internally just in um, affirming with people internally that actually uh, we have set out a good, strong plan here and it's starting to, to resonate um, with some of those sustainability opinion formers that I talked about. Um, and it really just helps... I think give people a bit of a sense of acknowledgement that actually all the hard work that many people around the business are putting in um, is worthwhile um, and I think spurs people on to to do more in future which is brilliant and I suppose externally um, uh, you know it will vary a bit depending on our audiences I talked uh, you know Heathrow is a very geographically rooted business business and we have a huge amount of engagement with people who live locally many of whom work at the airport, many of whom are supportive of the airport, some of whom are not. Um, and I suppose for an audience like them, they will pro probably, if I'm honest, judge us a bit less on an award like this and probably more on, OK, is Heathrow uh, setting out a clear plan on the issues that matter to me, be that you know air pollution or noise or surface transport or jobs, and is it doing what it said it would? Um, but I think the award is, is a really good... Um, uh, kind of acknowledgement of what we're doing, perhaps for some of the um, what I call you know national sustainability audience, um, uh, sustainability opinion formers, I guess. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, and then on the back of that, I'm sure that most people who are listening will have read parts of the strategy, notably the carbon neutral expansion um, aspect. But having had a chance to look at the judges' comments and to reflect over the past couple of weeks. Um, what do you think it is particularly that makes it stand out as an example of sustainable business leadership? Um, so I think there are probably three things that make it stand out. I mean, the first is, so if I give a bit of context for when we're developing 2.0, I may have said this to you guys before, but um, we looked at other UK companies renowned for having taken a lead and John, our chief exec, went to see his counterparts at Marks & Spencer's uh, so we talked to Stuart Rose, Paul Pullman at Unilever and uh, Ian Cheshire at Kingfisher. And he took two big messages from them, which we've looked to reflect in the plan as part of, you know, what makes leadership. The first is setting bold goals, even if you're not sure exactly how you're going to going to get there actually saying this is an important issue and we think we need to get to you know whatever it is carbon neutral expansion or ten thousand apprenticeships and so on so bold goals and focusing secondly on where you can make most difference as a business and so our plan um is 
has quite a strong local focus. I said we're very geographically rooted as a company. So some of the commitments on Heathrow is a great place to work. Apprenticeships, reflecting the diversity of our local community, have a very strong local focus. Um, the great place to live agenda, challenging the idea, well, no one wants to live near an airport. Well, actually, if we make it cleaner and quieter, uh, work with local authorities to join up green spaces around the airport, improve quality of life, let's challenge that notion. But equally, it's got uh, a strong nod within the plan to our role in the national economy and actually are connecting the UK to, to the world, but also this idea of a world worth traveling. Many people travel to explore the world. We're facing a pretty existential threat in climate change. What's our role in, in tackling that? So what makes Heathrow 2.0 a leadership plan? Firstly, bold goals. Secondly, we're acting where we can, can make most difference. And I guess the third point I'd put around that is this idea that um, we're not claiming we've got the answers to all of the questions, but what we are saying is that we want to ask the difficult questions and say, look, how are we going to work as Heathrow with others to resolve them? And the carbon challenge is probably the, the biggest one there. You know, the, the scientific evidence is saying we need to reach net zero emissions by the middle of the century across the economy. That's a huge challenge. And as aviation, we've got to work out what's our response to that? What combination of new technology, uh, of uh, offsetting of carbon pricing uh, is going to drive us to that uh, to that net zero future. And Matt, I was I was fortunate enough to be um, able to interact with some of the um, the judges and the judging panel around um, this award, and, and I think then they were all essentially in agreement that the last well since two point had been introduced, Heathrow had really really kind of stepped up to that leadership um, position, and now it was the job of of you as an organisation to bring, essentially bring the sector forward um, into that area, you know, share your learnings with um, other organisations and then obviously tackle that big carbon issue that you mentioned, especially with um, with the, the ambition for carbon neutral expansion. So, so you know, looking ahead, how, how do you see Heathrow developing that leadership position to, to ensure that you can, you can grow as, as the organisation within the limits of the, of the climate science you've just set out? So I think um, a couple of things there. I mean, we've set out we've set out our aspiration of carbon neutral growth with the third runway. Let me start there, but then I'll say something about net zero as well. So the starting point is saying as we we add the new runway and the flights that come with that, uh, we want to do that. Uh, in a carbon neutral way without growing net carbon emissions. Now, the good news is our UN uh, regulator, the International Civil Aviation Organization, is introducing this carbon offset scheme from 2020 for any growth. So that goes a long way, but it doesn't cover every single flight from Heathrow. So we want to help close that gap. We've put that out there, so it's really important that we find a way to deliver on that. But I think the longer term challenge is, is really the fundamental one, because carbon neutral growth is just a staging post to what does net zero carbon across the economy look like. And our challenge there is how do we work with the sector? So we are actively um, involved with the Yes, a group called Sustainable Aviation, UK Industry Coalition, airlines as well as airports, manufacturers, air traffic controls in there saying, OK, the IPC science is pretty clear. What do we think this means for us? Um, you know, what would net zero aviation uh, in the UK look like? Uh, and the important thing here is the air, we don't control everything at the airport, but we can't use that as an excuse. We need to say, OK, so therefore our role is to ask the difficult questions, not shy away from them. Uh, and 
actively take a lead with others in the sector and resolving them and to do that openly and transparently um you know just acknowledging publicly you know there's a big challenge here that we collectively have got to get to grips with so we're doing that really actively with the uk and increasingly actually what we're doing is talking to others in the global aviation industry other leading airports in europe but also the us and in asia and saying look this is a huge challenge for our sector will you work with us to to define the answer here. So really trying to mobilize the sector uh, around this. So expect to see a lot more of that from us over uh, this year and beyond. Okay, brilliant stuff, Matt. And um, I appreciate that you are extremely busy and I think you're um, you're kind of dropping in and out of meetings today to, to meet some of those um, uh, public that perhaps have some questions around that. So I will kind of let you get on with your day, but um, again, thank you so much for speaking to us today. No problem, thanks, Matt. And uh, thanks, was it Sarah as well? Yep. Thank you. Take yeah, care. Thanks, well, Cheers, man. And uh, yeah, no, you're very welcome. And uh, yeah, no, I was, as I say, you, we were genuinely delighted to have won the prize. And um, uh, I think it marks a uh, d- does show that we are starting to position ourselves as part of the solution. But I'm under absolutely no illusions. You know, we have a a long way to go here. So, well, I look forward to um, hearing the updates as they come in. But again, Matt, thank you for your time. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. There we go. Uh, thanks and congratulations to Matt Gorman and his Heathrow team. Um, very worthy winners, in my opinion. Uh, now, let's fly straight on to the next interview segment because we're now focusing on another ED Award winner, uh, this time IKEA, who picked up the CSR Engagement and Marketing Campaign of the Year Award, to be precise. Uh, and that's just all about I have written down, actually, because in truth, I don't know much about what we did with IKEA or when we did it and how we did it. So, Sarah, over to you. What, what did you do? Yeah, sure. So I'm sure if you've been following this, that like me, it will have been all over your LinkedIn for the past couple of years since IKEA announced that it would be building this shop, which is the first in London for the company for more than a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea is to create the leading sustainable store mm-hmm. in the UK and the location um, selected for that was the Greenwich Peninsula. Um, so I went along a couple of days before it opened for a press tour to have a sneak peek inside and it's very surreal being inside an Ikea without thousands of mums and their screaming toddlers <laughs> looking around and trying to buy meatballs and tea light holders and all manner of things in between at the same time. So yeah, it was really interesting to have a look inside. Okay, and uh, that you did and it sounds like the the tour was taken by the... the Head of Sustainability, the Sustainability Manager? Yes, it was. So it was with Hager, who we've had on this many times before. Yes, yeah, Johnson. Um, but then also with the store manager, Helen Aylett, Okay. as well. So sort of both right. approaches to the store. Um, we had a complete tour all around looking at all the key sort of built-in features and that you'd expect. Um, solar panels, um, LED lighting, and huge windows, actually, so a whole wall of this if you can imagine it's just glass which means fewer lights are needed and therefore less energy is needed and less less carbon interesting Um, well but then after that i sat down to have this catch up with hager summing up the key points of the talk okay uh well let's hear that chat then with uh, ikea's uk country sustainability manager hager sibornson in full so after exploring this new IKEA in Greenwich, I am now sat here with Hager, a regular feature on our <laughs> podcast. How are you doing today? I'm really excited. A really good day. 
Great, um, and hopefully to find out a little bit more and give you guys a flavour of what it's like to be here in a place where there is a roof pavilion, a learning lab and an e-bike storage unit um, as well. Now, I know you mentioned that this has been four years in the making, this store. So sort of where did the idea begin and how? Oh, big question, yeah. yes, absolutely. So, um, yeah, no, I feel very fortunate because actually... The first role that I came into with IKEA was Sustainability Expansion Manager. That was four years ago, and that was the first project that I really stepped into. Mm -hmm. So, um, as some of you may know, we had already a, a project underway in Cast Germany, which was the global first leading sustainable store from an IKEA perspective. And, and then, of course, we had this opportunity in London, and London is... Uh, well, I'm biased because I live in London, but it's a it's a very exciting city. It's a unique opportunity for lots of reasons. You know, the, the, the consumer behaviors here, the expectations from an innovation perspective are really high. Um, digital is, is, you know, really uh, advanced. So we could really look at what does it mean for a place like London? Um, so, yeah, as you said, four year process. And we started also to look at what do the community need? What is it that we can do differently here based on insights from London behaviour perspective, consumer behaviour perspective, of course trends and other things that you would expect, but equally the London, the, the peninsula of North Greenwich itself. It was going through such a, and is going through such a transformation. So we did community consultations, we had workshops with um, architecture students at Greenwich University, we had home visits to understand how people live in Greenwich and the demographics of Greenwich, and also listened to people's concerns because of course big store like IKEA, big company like IKEA coming into what is actually the most central London location for us, it was important that we really understood um, where people were coming from and what their needs were. And some of the um, trends if you like or insights that emerged out of that was also to look at how people meet and the spaces where they want to meet and the spaces available for people to meet. And certainly in this area there really isn't um, a lot of space for that. We also looked at um, you know, some of the maybe more marginal trends, if you like, but looking at uh, co-working spaces and the need for co-working spaces, maker spaces, how people are really interested in skills and workshops and doing things again. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, you know, I, have, I live in Hackney, so there's lots of those around. And maybe that's something in the past that big retailers wouldn't necessarily have looked at. But we really took a different approach with it, which shaped how we designed the store. No, walking around you can definitely see that there is that social sustainability aspect as well as the environmental sustainability aspect. Um, and I know you mentioned that there would be a lot of behaviour change involved with this store as well. So for example, in particular with transport and with upcycling, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, no, absolutely. So of course, just building on um, what you just said around, of course, the built form is perhaps the most expected aspect of building a new leading sustainable store. So we've aimed for BRIAM, um, well we've already met BRIAM Excellent which is a um, certification scheme. We've, we've aimed for Outstanding which is the leading certification you can get. But um, because we are so centrally located and equally we know also that Londoners 45 to 50% don't have cars so the behaviour is very different. Um, so how could we set up uh, a system and a service where you don't need to travel by your personal car, both from a sustainability perspective, but also knowing that customers in many cases don't have a car, um, but also from an environmental and not contributing negatively to air pollution in the mm. area. So we really looked at what that would look like and we have 45 buses or so that pass the store every hour, so uh, it is certainly the most um, 
connected store. But again, that's not going to be enough for people to stop taking you know, the car to get their flat pack home unless we provide really smart, affordable, convenient delivery services. Mm-hmm. So that was a big challenge for us. You know, We're used to having big blue boxes outside cities, which most people associate us with, but we really challenged ourselves. So I'm really proud to say that we've developed a service offer, which includes 24-hour delivery, um, but also more importantly, perhaps in the short term, or the immediate need, if you like, for deliveries, that you can have your goods delivered by cargo bike if you live within three uh, mile direction of the store, south of the river. Uh, We also have electric van deliveries and and taxi services. So again, it's the whole delivery package of how you get your goods home has Mm. been absolutely critical. Uh, And again, to be fair, we are doing something for the first time. So we're gonna have to do this together and really educate people around this change of behavior. Yeah, well, no one's going to get on the bus with two Billy bookcases <laughs> as much as I'm sure they would I'm, love to. I'm sure I've seen people try that, um, but it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily recommended. Mm. I think uh, I've seen quite a few students try and get as much as they can in their blue bags on, on buses. But of course, um, you can take your blue bag with your candles and everything else that is easy to take home, but also you don't have to. So mm. for the for the Zedify cargo bikes, for example, it's £5 for a small box and 7 for a, for a large one. So hopefully that makes it super easy to go for that option. Hmm. No, just for anyone that might not have seen these, I've been downstairs to have a look, and it's like a trike with a big <laughs> metal box on the back, sort of similar to the ones that um, City of London Corporation and Sainsbury's have been trialling, but much bigger. Mm. Um, good that they have a good motor on them, otherwise <laughs> I'd feel really sorry for your delivery <laughs> stuff. But again, it's an example of where we are testing and trialling at the moment as a three-month pilot mm-hmm. with, with as, as a partnership with Zedify. But it's also to understand um, you know, what customers will want and what they need. So again, it's about really tailoring it to, to the uptake and what mm. people want from us. And the other big behaviour change aspects of the store that's really noticeable is this idea of reuse, upcycling, um, recycling, circularity yes, in a nutshell. So there's this learning lab. Um, downstairs and then also some of the rooms are actually designed to showcase sort of um, how would we say products that have been giving a new lease of life Absolutely. so chairs with different legs or <laughs> with um, new upholstering on them so how are we going to encourage customers here to get into that mindset brilliant now that's something I'm personally super excited about and I think it's also a demonstration of the bigger commitment that um, IKEA's got and the announcements that we've made uh, towards becoming a secular business mm-hmm. um, and of course when we when we relaunched our people and plan a positive strategy June last year one of the biggest boldest commitments that we announced was to become a hundred percent circular business by 2030 and of course what that means then the question often I get even over dinner parties is like what the hell does that mean um, <laughs> and what does that mean for us uh, and how will you do that and of course we have we have a pretty robust furniture take-back service today and we, we have that in, in Greenwich as well but of course the unique aspects here and it's a global first is this learning lab it's a mm. 75 square meter space uh, situated downstairs where we have our bargain corner so the place where people come to buy X display products etc um, and what we will be testing and trialing in partnership with both partners and local community uh, and our internal staff is how can we run activities workshops talks to um, develop skills and mindsets around um, upcycling for example, Mm -hmm. prolonging product life, 
changing the mindset around once you're done or you're moving you either just you know get rid of it or you you can obviously give it on to someone which is also absolutely valid but what is the creativity that you can apply to refresh something mm -hmm. but also even simple things like disassembly all simple things like using a drill to put your furniture up uh, we've we've done a lot of research on this already and what we're finding is that with city living, in, in flats in particular, people have actually lost skills around simple, uh, well, seemingly simple skills like using a drill, and the confidence has gone. So we want to reintroduce some of those skills, but also how can you make sure that you assemble your furniture in a robust way? How can you disassemble your furniture in a good way? Um, and, and this is completely new, right? So it's something we will be um, trialing and testing and ideally then be able to both apply to other units and stores when we know what's working, but potentially scale up both globally but also in, in London. Um, but it's, it's a first. Mm. So for an 18 month period or so, we'll definitely be learning and trialing with everyone. And sort of what sort of workshops are there and how often will they be? be held so for example today we've we've seen sort of reupholstering of um, some stools I think with that big chunky hand knitting to cover yeah. stools <laughs> so it'd be um, we have a, we have a, a sense of an idea at the moment what we could do and some of those ideas are exactly like you described how to um, give a new lease of life to your stools for example mm -hmm. one of the things that um, Sharon one of my colleagues have been doing is to make pom-poms sew them onto an old shower cap that fits perfectly around the top of the stool um, but also how to customize and we'll bring in experts and influencers as well to show good hints and tips we obviously have a whole IKEA hackers community out there with very creative people that we can work with including internal interior design talent uh, in home furnishing expertise and bring that in we've been doing bug hotel workshops for children which is a really nice way to show how we use um, what's considered waste materials from our operations but turning that as a resource into new products like well new usable items like a bug hotel but it gives us also a time and an opportunity to talk to children about being close to nature the the, ch the difference of thinking about something as waste versus resource thinking creatively about using all of these resources in new and, and better ways and um, and yeah those are just a couple of the examples yeah. And did you mention something about maybe streaming it or monetizing some of the sessions as well? Absolutely. So I, I think we we um, we have a starting point idea of the sort of things we want to test out. Mm -hmm. We also know that, of course, there is a market out there for um, more in-depth, longer workshops, and they are actually quite expensive when you look at them in the market. Uh, we also always want to be affordable, so there will always be a degree of free activities, but we will consider some of the more in-depth, longer type of workshops that could be charged for, even mm -hmm. if it will always be based on an affordability principle. Um, and of course, again, we don't want to be just London-centric, um, and the way to reach more people and be accessible, uh, we believe, is to start to experiment with reaching people online. So it will be streaming, upcycling demonstrations, for example, or talks from experts on certain topics and the idea that people can then tune in from their laptop wherever they are uh, uh, but also that we can then record those and build up a library of uh, demonstrations that people can tap in at any point but again you know this is new to us so we're really excited to learn and understand what people are interested in mm, and then what would be the idea going forward with this concept once it's all been tested would the idea be to be building new stores all in this way to retrofit old ones or to bring concepts to existing stores for example yeah that's a really good question i hope that it will be of course i'm biased but i hope that every store in the world will be based on ikea greenwich from now on 
Um, no, I think we, we're in a process where we are really learning and iterating um, our whole concept. And I think it's a very exciting time to be part of IKEA because, of course, we're going through a transformation and we're transforming how we meet customers and cities in particular. So there is a lot of um, innovation, trialing and testing happening many places mm -hmm. at the moment. But of course, now that we've opened and, and we will be sharing what we've learned and what we're doing with Greenwich, it will create a new benchmark, it will create a new baseline. Um, and once we understand what works and if it's replicable and scalable, there's no reason why it can't be scaled and adapted to other stores, but also other places. But again, of course, it's about uh, applying it in a way that's meaningful and relevant for the local context, mm -hmm. uh, whilst also continuing constantly to build and improve on what we've done here. Mm. So, uh, yeah, the only the future will tell. No, I was going to say on that we spotted that the so the IKEA store has rickshaws, for example, and that would work in there, India. Yeah, but not here so much, <laughs> maybe. Or the electric deliveries in Shanghai again, it would be a slightly different concept. Exactly, exactly. So I think it's it's more about the principles, mm -hmm. um, you know, the principles of digitizations, more affordable, more convenient, more accessible, more sustainable. Those are there, those are the baselines, and then it's about finding what is, because also local ecosystems are different in terms of business ecosystems, the maturity of waste infrastructure, all of that is at different levels of maturity. So we have to adapt to that, consumer behaviors are slightly different. For example, in India, and I love this story, people do not assemble their own furniture. So, okay, what does that mean for us? Well, that meant that actually we could train 150 people and create new jobs to, dis to, to assemble furniture and why not train 100 women at the same time to create jobs for women knowing that a lot of women who stay at home will not let um, uh, assembly men into their flats or homes. So it's about being creative um, and thinking about positive impact at the same time. Okay, great. Well, I think that's everything I have for today. Um, thank you so much for joining us and love the tour. Thank you for coming and I hope everyone come and visit us. Great stuff. Uh, thanks very much for Hager and the IKEA team for showing us around and uh, well done for Sarah for uh, making it through the day without buying any meatballs or oven gloves or wall art or mirrors. Uh, now, speaking of mirrors, you see what I did there, uh, for our last interview segment uh, in part three, we're going to be turning the sustainable business mirror on ourselves before finding out what George's sustainability success story is of all time. So join us in part three. Welcome back to part three of three of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Uh, I mentioned uh, just earlier that we're going to be turning the mirror on ourselves now, and we're going to do just that. And that's not to say we're going to be interviewing ourselves as much as I would like to spend the last five or ten minutes just grilling George about exactly why he's leaving. Um, <laughs> but instead, we're going to be uh, speaking with the leader of our very own environmental task force. So I can give a bit of a very brief background as to what the task force is. Um, Obviously, ED and our, our publishers here, Faversham House Group, uh, want to be sort of walking the walk with sustainability. So um, a few years ago, we set up an, what we called an environmental task force, which was an in-house group of different employees. It's kind of preaching to the converted, I know here, with all of our listeners, probably kind of ABC for them, isn't it? But um, we basically, yeah, we set up an internal working group for um, employees to 
start really driving sustainability in the business. And then about a year ago, we started taking this a lot more seriously. Uh, we developed a couple of new pledges, which I'm probably going to be unable to read these out word for word. So George, you'll probably know these ones. So we, we announced some mission possible pledges of our own, didn't we, as a company? Yeah, that's right. Um, so we have got two pledges. Um, one of them's looking more at our direct impact, uh, and yeah. the other one's looking at more about how we can help um, people at our events and conferences, that kind of thing, to um, reduce their own environmental impact. So the first one, and I do have it in front of me, I don't just know this <laughs> off by heart. Um, the first one is Fabersham House, we pledge to reduce our direct emissions by 10% over a five year period relative to company turnover with a baseline year to be established in 2018. Yeah. Which we did, you're looking at me scared, but we, we did develop a baseline, a baseline year in 2018. We do have that data. So we did part one. Okay, and pledge number two. Tick. Um, well, not yet, not yet tick. We haven't reduced our emissions by 10%. We just discovered what the baseline was, but yeah. Well, you deserve to give yourself a pat on the back for the restart in the Thanks. process. Thanks. Uh, the second pledge is, we pledge to develop and implement a new sustainable events policy for all Faversham House managed events, i.e. conferences, awards, exhibitions, by May 2019. Yes, and that is where we knew, having made those two commitments, both, you know, they're quite punchy commitments for us as a company, considering how, I guess, we haven't collectively focused on these kind of things before properly or enough. Um, so uh, about six months ago to a year ago, we brought on board um, Anya Ledwith, who is the director of Eshcon. She's a good friend of ED's. She's been a, a judge on our awards for a uh, number of years. Um, and we uh, told her about this task force, asked her if she could be involved, and um, she kindly agreed, and she's decided to sort of lead the task force as we try and achieve those two pledges. And to make things more complicated, Matt, this is where you come in because you at our last task force meeting were waiting outside with your podcast recorder in hand, uh, waiting to uh, have a chat with Anya, weren't you? And I'm yeah. assuming that was about this task force. Pretty much you kind of summoned me from the, the kind of depths <laughs> of, a, um, of a DEFRA report onto kind of deposit return schemes and, and said Anya um, is available for a quick chat. Um, and Anya's someone I've spoken to a lot in the past, so mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to be one to turn that down because around this type of stuff in terms of helping uh, companies map and reduce environmental impact, she, she's one of the best. So um, we had a quick like, seven minute chat, nothing too long in that sense, around um, you know how she feels about the task force, what its potential is and, and where Faversham House can start having its biggest kind of impact straight away. Well, yeah, it should be a nice insight considering we're, uh, I guess, not an SME, but we're a relatively small business. So. Uh, here is Matt's chat with Annulette with the leader of our um, environmental task force in full. Bit of a change from our normal interview setting, which is central London for this uh, next piece. We're actually still in um, the ED offices. We've commandeered the boardroom for about five to ten minutes and I'm here to talk to Anya Ledwith, the founder of Eshcon. For those of you who know ED very well will undoubtedly know Anya very well. She's been... Um, I suppose a loyal helper for stuff like awards and judging processes in the past, um, speaker at ED Live previously as well, and more recently you've been helping us not just communicate sustainability but act on it as well. I suppose it's just best if I, um, if I get you to describe what um, you've been doing at the ED offices. Mm, yes, yes, absolutely. Well, 
Faversham House have set up an environmental task force. Um, as with most organisations, Faversham House sees that environmental management and sustainability will be um, best placed right into the heart of the business. So that's what we've set up the environmental task force, to look at the big things of how um, Faversham House can reduce its own impact, but also raise awareness on sustainability issues. So the task force was set up about three or four months ago. We've had a, a good thinkathon session, <laughs> not a brainstorming session, it was a thinkathon, to identify various issues across the organisation in terms of carbon, um, carbon uh, emissions, energy use, business travel, but also the services that Fashion House delivers in terms of the, um, the ED website, the ED live activities, um, the Sustainability Leaders Awards, so you do a whole list of publications, activities, events and you know sort of like general raising awareness and how we can reduce the sustainability impact of those. So not only reducing our own impact but sharing with others what, how we can do it. So we've got two pledges and that's supporting your mission, mission possible um, program is to think about how to reduce our own carbon impact so we've set a, um, a carbon emissions reduction target and that's looking very much about um, our own activities within the office but also the the events that we're putting on so about 35% of our carbon emissions come from the events that we put on in terms of the venues that we're hiring whereas maybe 25% of our carbon emissions come from the electricity that we use within the business, within the business premises. So, so lots of opportunities across the organisation. And the other side of things is to make sure that our events are run in a sustainable manner. Now we did start just looking at food, so thinking about sustainability, sustainably sourced food, but actually we wanted to widen the process to looking at food, at venues, at how people travel to the, to the events. And so all of those are being put together, we're developing a really solid sustainability events policy and we're sharing that with the wider events industry as well. That's great to hear because um, obviously ED we write about this kind of stuff daily, we write about what businesses are doing in terms of sustainability and this is us to really kind of I suppose practice what we preach in that sense but um, from my little involvement that I've had with the task force so far it's good to see that it's not just um, the ED editorial team coming in and sitting on it, we've got people from uh, sales events, um, kind of IT upper management as well. So it's the whole Faversham House um, in, embodiment. Is there is there anything from the, the the kind of task force meetings to date that you've noticed as a as a big opportunity for Faversham House? Or well, very much on the outward facing side mm. of things. Um, I mean, if we're looking at our own carbon emissions within the office, it's relatively minor. Yeah. You know, we're in a serviced office here, so we can't do much in terms of the, the heating and, the, and the, the ventilation, whereas we can on using our computers. Okay, that's relatively minor. It's how, how we put the events on, what venues we choose, what um, uh, catering arrangements that we have, but also the location of the venues. Can we encourage our, our delegates to travel by public transport rather than by driving? Um, because actually when we did the numbers, um, delegate travel to our events absolutely dwarfed the carbon emissions that came from our own activities. So if we can encourage um, uh, 
events that are taking place around the country, so to reduce delegate travel, encourage them to go by public transport rather than by driving, and and also sort of take part in more podcasts and webinars and things that they don't have to travel, they can actually still get a lot of the activities and a lot of the, lot of the information um, and education without actually leaving their own office. So yeah, great opportunities and I'm really pleased that Fabsham House are leading on this, great. Well, thank you very much for that, that praise and um, yep, so that will be running um, throughout the year so hopefully we'll have some more updates for, for you as we go. There's also a case study uh, available to read on the website right now which delves into how we are reducing the energy consumption of our IT infrastructure, um, a solution provided by um, Infomatrix Solutions, so be sure to check that out. And Annie, just before I, I kind of let you um, get on with the rest of the day, um, it's probably an undoubtedly busy time for you and um, Eshcom with ESOS kind of really uh, doing the rounds recently. So, so how, you know, how have things been like for you in that kind of sense? We've got um, SECA coming up as well. Mm, indeed. ESOS, because it's on a four-year cycle, uh, admittedly it was a little bit quiet for the last couple of years, but now we've got the deadline in December this year. So I'm working with a lot of um, existing but also new clients to really understand how they're using energy within their businesses but identify opportunities to reduce as well. It's going to get really busy for throughout the year. Um, my whole approach is to make it, again, sort of like embed it within the organisation. So those companies that haven't looked at ESOS for four years and suddenly looking at it again as a bit of a, a, bit of a hassle, well, actually, you're not going to get the best um, out of it. There are opportunities to save energy, save money, and, and embed energy management and environmental management into the business. Um, you mentioned SECA, so as of next year, the streamlined energy and carbon reporting regulations come into, come into play, so that large companies have to include energy, um, kilowatt hour data, uh, transport data, carbon emissions, but also text about what their energy efficiency activities are, all has to be included in their annual report. So those companies that are doing ESOS now, that's useful to do that now, but they need to do that as well in, in future years. And putting that into the annual report, again, it raises the, the credibility of it. It means the finance director is very interested in these sustainability activities rather than just the environmental people. So great opportunities for our industry. Well, this, this episode has been all about kind of outline what makes um, a successful, sustainable business, um, not just at Faversham House, but with some of our award winners um, as well. So that's a real kind of great nugget of advice to, for, for people listening to be getting on with um, with the uh, energy data, ESOS and, and SECRA coming up. So Anya, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Yes, a uh, bit of shameless self-promotion there, I suppose, of our own sustainability efforts. But uh, thank you very much to, to Anya and to the rest of our task force downstairs. Uh, and we'll be sure to keep you updated with our own sustainability progress as time goes on. Now, we've got about five minutes left of this episode, about six, five, six minutes left of the day. It's five to five here. Um, George, that technically means it's your last sort of five minutes of your life here at Evie as we know it, isn't it? That pause well, was a bit too long. <laughs> Let me finish the sentence. Never want to sensationalise <laughs> How does it feel? Um, it hasn't really sunk in, I'll, I'll be completely honest. Um, it hasn't for me either. We were, I was saying it's just now, it is a bit crazy. But yeah. I just, yeah, because, because you've been working me to the bone. <laughs> <laughs> 
But no, but because like <laughs> the work has been quite quite full on for the last few weeks, as we've all mentioned, um, with our own events, I've been de- dealing with the reports, that kind of thing. I haven't actually had a chance to even contemplate the fact that I'm leaving, so it doesn't feel real yet. It's only this afternoon when I thought, oh, we're getting into the podcast, we have to talk about this kind of thing. And then you start thinking about, oh, this is the last time. Yeah. The last time I'm going to file a Mission Possible pledge of the virtual work, <laughs> which is something that seems so small and mundane, but like, yeah, it's, it suddenly hits home then. Good. Well, um, of course, I suppose, as they say in a, in a, a well-known TV show, I think, you can't go away empty-handed, because I do have been sitting on it for the last, so it'll be nice and sort of warmed by me uh, for the last uh, half an hour, but we've got a little little card for you. Oh, do you want to maybe open it up? Do I open it now? Or? Open it live on air so that everyone can hear the rustling. Try and try and make it quick, because everyone's probably quite bored by yeah. now. <laughs> At least uh, no one will be able to see my floods of tears when I open it. So this is George's parting gift from... From, from the team, the, from yeah. the team. <laughs> look at that <laughs> you've got to explain what, what this is on so our... I'm opening the card and we've got um, a big picture of, of one of my heroes of all time actually um, David Brent um, <laughs> the similarities between him and Luke Nichols are astonishing <laughs> so I'm growing the beard out as we speak actually yeah look at this oh we've got lovely personal message yeah. I don't, you're actually making me well up there now. <laughs> um, I won't read it out. You don't want to read it out? Read it out, just for the listeners. Georgie? No, no one ever calls me Georgie. <laughs> it's because you're the best. Oh, there, there we go. Oh, I like that one. Congratulations on pursuing your dream, in caps, of not working here anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All the best, Luke. And, and, and Matt and Sarah. Oh, yeah, and, and obviously Matt and Sarah. Of course. Oh, this is brilliant. And there's a, there's a little um, Ticketmaster yeah. gift card as well. Open it up. Open yeah, it up. Put some money on it. Bloody hell. Is that £2.50 gift voucher? Come on. <laughs> no, no this, is, this is brilliant. £50 Ticketmaster voucher. Oh, yeah. Wow, I'm, I'm, I'm made up, to mm. say the least. Well, very uh, well-deserved. Um, right, it's probably time to sort of see us out, um, as you've done for all previous episodes, but this time with a little bit of a twist, so I thought you could sing us out with a bit of good news, um, to not literally just, you know, just hear us out with a bit of good news. Uh, so it's usually our sustainability success stories of the week, which I always love saying. Um, this time I thought you could maybe give us your, success, your sustainability success story of the past 3.3 years, George. 2.11. Is it 2.11? Yeah, okay, I've got that wrong. I was pretty know that, yeah. yeah. That's pretty good. He's been counting down the days, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, so what's your sort of, what's been your success story of the past couple of years then in terms of on a, on a more serious note like what is there been anything that stood out that's really impressed you or that you will go away and think that was one thing that I've been sort of wowed by from from the job um, nothing I can think on a personal level there's probably no one that influences or inspires me no, no one if at it, all. Did, it would be Matt probably I would yeah, say, yeah, Matt say if it wasn't Matt if Matt wasn't in the right well I suppose it would have to be Amanda or CEO <laughs> <laughs> right, we'll leave that one there anyway but from, a, from an industry perspective anything stand out um, yeah I mean you just spring this upon me about 10 minutes ago before we, we went live and I find it very hard to pinpoint an exact event or an incident which has happened over the last three years. So I'll go with more of like a general theme. Um, We recently published our business leadership report, which is based on a survey of 250 sustainability professionals. And basically that got me thinking about leadership. What does leadership mean? And, you know, 
as part of that, you had all the different trades, so collaborating, sharing best practice, that kind of thing. And then I looked at like the types of leadership that you have. When I first started, it was shortly after the Paris Agreement had been agreed, and we talked about how you know there'd been business leadership uh, mm -hmm. in helping to um, secure that deal. Um, and then it got me thinking about you know the, the different types of leadership that we have. So you've obviously got the business level, you've got the Paul Pullmans of the world, um, and then that seeps down obviously to the sustainability managers who are doing this kind of thing on a daily basis. You, you look at you know the leadership which has been done by uh, employees on an everyday basis. I think Mike Barry was talking about you know, how everyone should be a sustainability professional without necessarily being an expert. Mm -hmm. um, you got that through our environmental task force as well, mm -hmm. that's manifested in that. Um, and then you've got consumers, you've got, you've got the people coming up in the world, you've got the Greta Thunbergs of the world, you know, mm -hmm. the youth. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just so another very elongated way of saying it is, is saying that leadership is growing for sustainability. Um, you know, your voices are getting louder and it's coming from all corners of society and that's probably galvanised us as individuals and businesses to, to, to build that sustainable future. Yeah, so a sort of a, a, a general point about the growth of kind of leadership per se, and I guess this episode has been quite fitting for that, considering that everyone we've spoken to, I think, has been associated with an award at some point or rather on pretty much every topic we've covered has We've got an award on and things, and yeah, so I would concur with that. Nice one. Uh, well, it has been emotional, George. Um, James, our, our new insight editor, uh, if you're listening, you've got those sort of, that's what you've got to, those are the shoes you've got to fill, big ones, both <laughs> metaphorically and literally, I'm sure. Um, Matt, any sort of parting words to George? Um, I mean... We, we used to, wow. <laughs> you, you've, left, you've left me speechless. No, we, we used to do in the podcast without George, aren't we? So I mean, yeah. it'll just be business as usual. Yeah, yeah. yeah, great. That's really nice of you, man. That's <laughs> great. Well, you know, when you think those words really stick with you for the rest of your life. <laughs> Sarah, any sort of last thoughts or words for George? Well, unlike you guys, I don't rope George 24-7 because I sit next to him and I value my life. <laughs> so just congratulations and best of luck. Thank you, Sarah. That's I think that's probably the best. nicest thing that anyone in this room has ever said to me. Yeah, you can buy me a beer later for saying that. Uh, aren't you going to yoga? No, I've been a bunk. Oh, oh, wow. oh, wow. Here we go. Right, let's get out of here. We've got a few minutes. So, uh, Matt, very quickly, next episode, what's coming up? All about energy excellence. Um, we're touching base with a few of our Energy Leaders Club members, um, hopefully going to touch base with another award winner in, um, from SLA in the energy sphere. Yeah. Um, and we're going to be hearing uh, a bit more from our sponsors, Eon. Great. Well, yeah, on that note, teed that up nicely. I also wanted to say thanks again to our, to our sponsors, uh, Eon, from this episode. Uh, very much looking forward to the next one. So until next time, it's a goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. Goodbye from Sarah. Goodbye. It's goodbye from me. And until forever, this is your last words on the podcast, George. Oh, it's a no. goodbye from George Ogilvy. It is finally sunk in. Goodbye. Mm -hmm.